Welcome to Moments with M3 Leadership Podcast, where Mary Malone and her guests have authentic conversations about leadership, navigating transitions, and finding purpose both at work and at home. We hope this conversation will give you the inspiration, power, and courage to reach for greatness while making a difference for someone else. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. At least it's afternoon here in Boca Raton, Florida. I'm actually in our office this week. I live in Chicago and commute to the Boca office every other week. And yes, I've been doing it during COVID. Happy to share any insight on that, even offline. But I'm excited today because when you think about this topic of reimagining the future of the workplace, I think we've all at some point talked about it at least once, and I know I've talked about it at least hundreds of times with my peers, folks that I work with, my family, like you name it. It's been out there and we've been living it over the past year. So I'd like to introduce Mary Malone McCarthy. Mary Malone and I met probably about two years ago, as she invited me to a senior leader network for conscious capitalism. And that's how we met through a mutual colleague of ours. So both Mary Malone and I will be facilitating this session today. And we've got a fantastic group of of panelists that have varying perspectives, diverse perspectives on this topic. And I'd like to turn it over to Mary Malone for a quick second, but just to give you a little bit of preview, I mentioned that I'm in I'm in the office today and actually talk about timing. And we just talked about it as a group a few minutes ago. ADT announced a couple of weeks ago that we are bringing our folks back to the office. We're starting that mid-May. And then we're going with with having folks come in about three days a week, but then we will be coming in full by July. So a lot going on in that that topic, a lot of different perspectives on that topic. And, you know, Mary Malone and I actually spent some time together over the past couple of months just talking through some other topics related to HR as it relates to her firm M3 and the work that she's doing in the space of HR consulting and HR search. And we thought, hey, it would be great to get a group of folks together and talk about this topic. So Mary Malone, if you want to introduce yourself, we can get going. Terrific. Thank you, Harriet. And I am so glad our paths crossed because we have the most fantastic conversations and we cover so many interesting topics. And we have found from one conversation to the next how much was changing in so many organizations and sharing best practices, sharing strategies, sharing challenges, you know, everything from mental wellness to the hybrid workplace. And as she mentioned, my firm, M3 Placement and Partnership, we do both executive search and strategic HR. And so we saw from both sides of it, the companies that were really struggling and trying to figure out how to make things work when we went quickly to a remote environment to now how do we emerge out of that. And so when we were talking about reimagining the future of the workplace, we shared an excitement about all the different leaders that we could pull together to share. And I think that's one of the 
beautiful silver linings out of COVID is how so many groups want to share their knowledge and their expertise and their experience with others to be able to help because we're really, we're writing this playbook as we go. So our hope today is through this incredible group of leaders that we can share the knowledge, everything from a hybrid workplace to compensation, to culture, to diversity and inclusion, to give a wealth of knowledge and information to help people as we continue on this journey together. So with that said, I'd love to have everybody join me in welcoming our group of panelists. First, we have Christy Harris. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Christy is the Chief Talent Officer, Chief Diversity Officer with Allstate. We have Susie Sosa, who is the CEO and founder of Verb. We have Suzanne Morneau-Wade, who is the Executive Vice President and CHRO with Xerox. And we have Deb Beckman, Managing Director at Sem Brasi, and Scott Panzer, who's the Vice Chairman and International Director at JLL Real Estate. And as we welcome everybody today, one of the things we thought each of the panels could do is just share a very brief introduction of yourself, as well as a dramatic change their business has faced this past year and how you managed through that, how you pivoted, but we thought it would be a wonderful way to kick off today's conversation and then we'll go from there. So why don't we start with Christy, if you could give us a brief introduction, share your experience at Allstate. Thanks, Mary. I've been at Allstate for 20 years. So long, long time. I came from working at Mayo Clinic where I was actually in finance. So made a switch out of industries and disciplines. But I have accountability from talent acquisition. So the recruitment of our agents all the way to our executives to employee development, leader development, culture, employee experience, our DEI initiatives. And a lot of things that I've been focused on lately has been the future of work and the future of the workplace. And Harriet, we've done just a little bit something different than you did. And we can talk about that you know, later when we think about the remote workforce. But we have been very much steeped in how we're going to bring people back to work. And I don't mean back to work because they have been working this whole time, but back to the office and, you know, really thinking about, you know, what does that mean for culture, for an an employee experience and how work gets done? You know, I think most organizations would probably say in the last year, you know, COVID really interrupted and disrupted, you know, how people work, how things get done. And of course, that's true for the insurance industry itself. Another over overlying issue that we had to think about last year was the racial tensions and how what was permeating outside shed a light on what might be happening inside our organizations as well. But specifically for the insurance industry, obviously, when things sort of came to a halt, people started driving less. Even though they were driving less, actually, they were driving faster. And so some of the accidents actually created more trouble because it actually was more expensive. And actually, we had saw more fatalities when it came to that. On the flip side, so that may be you know, an interesting perspective because insurance companies start to do things to give back to their policyholders and insurers because we were charging, you know, obviously for insurance and people were driving less. 
On the flip side, that also meant people were buying less cars and we saw revenues drop too because people weren't necessarily shifting. They had to make sure that they were able to cover their insurance, but not everybody had income last year still coming in in which they could buy new things. So those are just a couple of the things that we had to do to really sort of think about the impact that COVID had on the insurance industry. Thank you, Christy. It's it's fascinating to just think, you know, of you learn something from everybody's business and, you know, the unfortunate to, to hear that the accidents were, were more fatalities and buying cars was down. Although I hear that's going to change quickly that the, the increase in, in automobiles, the chip issue, is yeah, what the chip talking is- about. <laughs> you're getting it on both ends. Well, the interesting thing is, is now the home purchasing is going kind of gangbuster. So like it's all over the place. Yeah, great. Well, thank you. Susie, great to have you. And Susie is the CEO and founder of Verb, and they've been very busy with their online training and development system. So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to be be here with everybody. As Mary Malone said, my company is called Verb. I'm the founder and CEO, and we're an online leadership development platform. So we focus on specifically on training first-time managers and their teams. And our kind of unique point of view has always been what we might call human-centered leadership. So skills like empathy, emotional intelligence, self-care, self-awareness, inclusion, And I would say one of the big dramatic shifts for us as a business in the last year is that a lot of companies that might have thought those leadership capabilities were nice to have now think they're need to have. So Mm. that was really good for us, a kind of awakening. Our point of view has always been that to be a great leader of others, you have to first work on yourself and things like self-awareness and vulnerability help create trust, which is a component of psychological safety, which of course is a really hot topic right now, whether we're talking about back to work or back to the office or having conversations about equity, inclusion, and belonging. So last year was a really hard year for us because our, our buyers are HR leaders and they were you know, extremely preoccupied with everyone transitioning to remote and then with race conversations and so leadership development kind of went a little bit to the back burner. And so we did see kind of our sales dip for a little while, but now we feel that there's just an incredible readiness for our approach to leadership development and HR leaders are coming back and saying, oh my gosh, you know, we have to equip our managers, especially those first time managers and junior managers with the capabilities to handle this stuff because they're on the front lines. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I think there's such a shift in a priority now on taking care of the whole person. And I think that's a fantastic result of a very unfortunate situation that now the organization is saying, you know, it's not a, you know, we should pay attention. It's like, we really do need to pay attention to this. So thank you and welcome. Suzanne, it's so nice to have you a part of the panel. And Suzanne, again, is the executive vice president and CHRO with Xerox. Thank you, Mary. Nice to be here with everyone. So thank you for the introduction. And I am the CHRO at Xerox. We're headquartered here in Connecticut. I am actually in the office and most of the leadership team has been in for most of the year. We have just started to invite our employees back into, you know, offices where possible in the last few weeks. We gave everyone about a six-week start or so. And we're starting to see of our hundreds of locations around the world, where possible, people are starting to come back in. 
We have been following a very strict protocol since early last year, February, frankly, which was about the time that we shut down most of our offices and really put in place a very strong, multi-focused team to think about COVID response and return back into the workplace. And so that is still running and has proved to be very successful for us in terms of managing both the business, but also managing our employees. One of the things I will note, and very similar to the comments that Christy and Susie mentioned, you know, from a CHRO standpoint and from an HR standpoint, last year was an unbelievably difficult, difficult year, right? You know, I often tell people that I view last year as one of in which we were in a situation where we had no playbook. There was no playbook to deal with the pandemic. Any plans, thoughts that one might have thought would have helped them, I'm sure people quickly found that they were useless. But then we suffered a second pandemic, a second virus, so to speak, around racism. And while this has always been here, it really came to the surface last year, as we saw and continue to see. We then again were thrust back into how do we actually deal with this? For me, it's been an interesting journey of trying to to lead and navigate our organization through both of these very, very important things to our people. So just a bit about me and the things that we have been dealing with, Mary. Fantastic. Thank you. And I'm so looking forward to hearing more. And I would call them two significant life-changing pandemics to have both hit at the same time. It's just monumental. So thank you. Deb Beckman. Deb, thank you for joining us. Deb is the Managing Director at Semler Brasi and looking forward to hearing your brief overview and some of the things you've been going through at Semler Brasi. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, it's, it's great to be here. As Mary Malone mentioned, I'm uh, a partner with Semler Brasi, which is a executive comp and HR consulting firm. And we do most of our work with um, board comp committee and HR committees, as well as with management. And I actually just joined the firm in January, having been at Goldman Sachs for the 14 years prior to that, also in HR. So some of the issues that we have been dealing with is we're really, really busy. Uh, There's been a lot of need for consulting services and primarily driven by a couple of things that a number of you already mentioned, which is what used to be a comm committee has much evolved to an HR committee in many organizations. And so with everything going on, much more focused on hearing about employee wellness, on anything special that we should be doing or are doing for employees during this period beginning last March and continuing as we think about bringing people back. Also a huge, huge focus on diversity and inclusion and other ESG metrics and how are we thinking about those as it relates to our talent strategy, how we promote people, how we think about our, our pipeline, and then how we pay people. And when and how do you link those things? So I would say that, and then the other sort of theme was around, you know, many of the executive comp plans are very much driven by metrics and formulas and goals. And that all sort of went out the window for most companies in 2020 because it turned on its end. You know, the question was, what do you do? You know, do you 
we're going to miss those goals? Do we set new goals? Does the committee exercise discretion? And that is still living with us as people now realize how that can happen. And so, you know, do we have the right incentives and designs in place for our management team as we think about the Fantastic. Thank you. As, as everyone listening and, and watching can see, we've got so many topics to be talking about here. So thank you, Deb. And again, just another example of how fast things are moving and the shift to really, you know, uh, the, the role of HR leadership through this. Scott, you've been busy as the vice chairman and international director at JLL Real Estate. I loved how, you know, Harriet shared with me how you're very proactive in the shift and the changes in your industry. And so looking forward to you introducing yourself and sharing a couple of the, the challenges your organization has faced and how you're pivoting. Sure. Thank you so much. I mean, first, I guess I'm sort of honored because in a place and an environment where we're all talking about diversity and inclusion, the fact that you all included me is an important factor. So I feel like that I've met, I've met the, the quota for diversity today on this call. So, so thank you all for inviting me to this, and I'm honored. I want to start off by saying 2020 was a real pivotal year for the real estate industry and for many of our clients. I think the first thing that we have to go back to and think about is it really put real estate on its heels because the first thing everybody did was leave their real estate or their commercial real estate, hunker down in their homes and start doing work. The interesting thing is JLL globally was extraordinarily busy during 2020, helping many of you and your customers and clients and our clients help them determine where they should be, how they should think about workplace, what are they going to do, how are they going to get back to the space, how do they induce people to come back, how do they force people to come back if they can, all those metrics. And if I tell you it was a terrible year for revenue and profits for us, but it was an extraordinarily powerful year for us getting very close with our clients in a virtual environment. 2020 and the and, and the things that went on, which you've all articulated already, which is the, the combination of, of COVID and other things that were happening, which were extraordinarily unfortunate, but always there, is very, very different than the three prior setbacks. Whether you look at many of you are old enough to remember, I, I am, Y2K, 2000, the changeover, what would happen, and the dot-com explosion, 9-11, and then the 2008 financial crisis, those were all financial setbacks. Those were all things that you could, with money and, and a little vigor, could fix. This last year was all about psychology, and it was psychology and politics. And unfortunately, we can't fix that necessarily in the workplace. We can only try to find a way to help people feel more comfortable about coming back to the workplace when it happens. I think what you'll hear most of the people talking about as we go through this process now for the next hour or so is a lot about a hybrid model and which way are people skewing one to the other. But just to give you a little bit of sense of where we, we are at JLL, globally, 100,000 employees. I will tell you that since September of last year, we have been 80% back to the office. The, the new acronym is now RTO, Return to Office, versus WFH Work From Home. So we have 80% back to the office in Asia Pac. We are less than 5% in EMEA and still locked down quite a, many of our offices across the board. And in the U.S., we're running roughly 10 to 20%, depending upon region, and interestingly enough, depending upon what the political system tells people they're allowed to do. So most recently, you may have seen the, the governor of Florida said everything is open, everybody back. The mayor of New York City said, we're not going back to July 7th. The governor of New York State turned around and said, no, I don't care what the mayor of New York City said. I'm telling you, you can all go back as of May 15th. So we have a lot of that going on. And of course, many companies are sitting there saying, well, we're not going to go against what 
we're being told legally we can do, but we are going to do things to entice people to come back. And we'll talk more about that when we go through the process. So a couple of other things I just want to share with everybody outside of even JLL and, and some statistics. If you look at 2020, and we, we surveyed and, and JLL's research team took a look at 950 plus or minus firms from the S&P, FTSE, Hang Sang, DAX, global players. And we try to get a sense of who would be more susceptible to these types of impact things going forward, whether it's politically induced or, in fact, if it's really a COVID environment, which would just what we went through. Turns out, no surprise, energy, fossil fuels, and real estate significantly down last year. Energy, fossil fuels down 30%, real estate down 10 to 15%. Insurance, believe it or not, was down, as, as you've heard. But yet, some aspects of insurance, like boat insurance, believe it or not, more people bought boats last year than cars. So their insurance pieces went up. On the other side, companies that really excelled, the Amazons, the software companies, and the healthcare companies, no surprise. Great. Thank you, Scott. That was very helpful. And I, I think a lot of those points will be woven throughout the conversation. Terrific. So Harriet, why don't we kick things off with some questions? Sure, sure. And thanks to everyone. I love hearing the diverse perspectives, depending on kind of what you've experienced and from your organizations. I'll start with Christy. So Christy and I have known each other for 20 years, mm-hmm. probably. Right. Yeah. So Christy and I work together at Allstate, and I can say this with the utmost confidence. She is one of the best leaders I've ever met in my life and one of the best people I've ever met in my life as well. And she's done fantastic stuff at Allstate. So she was one of the first folks that I, I thought of for this panel and especially on the topic of leadership based on her role and really based on the work that Allstate has done over the years in focusing on leadership development and varying levels of leaders in the organization from those that are entry level all the way up to the executive level. So I'm sure you've got your hands full right now, right? And especially as you're trying to figure out how do you lead in this type of an environment that's remote or hybrid or all in the office, like, you know, and I know that Allstate's got roughly 40,000 plus employees scattered across the United States, some of them in claims offices, some of them in, you know, various corporate offices, you know, and so the diversity of the workforce I know is vast. So tell us what's going on as it relates to kind of how, how leaders are adjusting to this or what kind of tips you've given them and resources that would be great. Thanks, Harriet. I do love talking about uh, leadership. Although when Susie started talking about what her firm did, I started to get like, am I the right person to answer this question? So Susie, you can certainly clean me up. But what I loved what you said, and when I was thinking about how I respond to this, is it feels like leadership is something that I continually am working on and aspiring to do better. And there's always something in my toolkit that I'm learning, refining, and trying to meet the needs of my employees and, you know, the larger ecosystem of Allstate, like as we grow and, you know, things change. And I just want to take it up just a little bit, you know, beyond just remote working, because I think leadership is a key, whether people are in the office, outside of the office or hybrid, because oftentimes, you know, leaders 
we take initiative, we align our teams. And so we're driving towards a, a goal and we help strategy. We, you know, we help motivate and reward. And we try to get employees to go someplace that maybe they wouldn't go on their own. But today, you know, with COVID, with internal and external factors, there's so much pressure on leaders. We know that leaders play a significant part of how an employee experiences their company, their job, and their work environment. The leaders help create that perception. And that is regardless if it is how we interact, how we include, how we exclude, how we pick people for assignments. And so, you know, we've been asked several times, like, how do you, you know, lead in a remote environment? And I was in like a little puzzled because about 44% of our employees sit in the same office as their leaders prior to COVID. So the question was, was, well, how were leaders leading previously? And you mentioned, Harriet, we have 40 some thousand employees spread across the U.S. We also have employees in Canada, India, Northern Ireland, and now with the acquisition of NatGen in Mexico. And so our leaders are having to find ways to create inclusive environments in which they bring everyone along. Another question that I've gotten a lot since COVID was, well, how do I measure productivity? And I was like, well, how did you measure productivity before? I mean, it wasn't because somebody was sitting at an office at a desk. I mean, I know we all know that there are employees who are at or in the office but could be talking a lot, you know, surfing the internet. That doesn't mean that they're productive. You know, we as leaders need to be measuring our employees on outcomes and results and how they get the results and outcomes, not only the results, but the behaviors in which, you know, people are demonstrating. So I think, you know, leaders and employees need us more than ever. You know, part of it is being transparent, like keeping our employees informed. That also requires communication. And it can't be just one-way communication. It can't be one vehicle of communication. I don't know about you, but I think lots of us are on email overload. It isn't always the best way to create engagement. You know, recognitions are certainly tools to boost, you know, morale and highlight the right capabilities and behaviors. I think that it's really important for leaders to provide a sense of purpose and development and help people connect their purpose to the company's you know, mission, demonstrate understanding and empathy. Not everybody is handling internal and external pressures the same way as you might do. And I think it's really important to promote the team, but also respond to the individual because each one of us is different. And Susie, I just want to highlight something you mentioned a little bit is vulnerability. And I think it's really an interesting characteristic that leaders can have. And yet it's super scary the first couple of times in which you, you know, display that. But I will say from experience that the more you're vulnerable, the more permission your team gets to be even more vulnerable. They provide this tremendous amount of support and encouragement, and they recognize themselves in you and they come around and support you so that you can admit that, hey, I don't know how to handle this, or I may not be the best person to do that, that not only creates, you know, trust and commitment, but it also, you know, creates that psychological safety, not just for you, but for the team. And I'll pause there and Harriet or any others or Susie, feel free to add, chime in or clean me up if I misspoke. 
I think you're you're spot on with with what we see. We sell to companies of all sizes. We have companies with 100,000 employees and companies with 200 employees, you know, where they're leadership development partners. So I would say, you know, what you're sharing is totally aligned. It's been a really big shift for a lot of leaders to go from maybe focusing more on productivity and accountability to now having to focus on well-being and psychological safety, the kinds of capabilities that you need to, to achieve productivity and accountability are really different than the ones to create belonging. And most leaders have never been taught it, don't know how to develop it, and have maybe never even seen it modeled. So there was a really steep learning curve this year for a lot of leaders to figure out, you know, just on the topic of race, um, that's one where they were trained for so long, don't talk about race. And now it's like, oh, we want you to talk about race. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) It was terrifying. So I think that's um, a big theme right now is how do we equip leaders with the kinds of learning and development tools and programs to work on these other kinds of capabilities. So they do know, how do you practice vulnerability? How do you practice practice authenticity? You can, but most companies and most leaders haven't done that before. Yeah, I think, you know, we all want a personal connection, right? Like we want our leaders to know us, know something about us, care for us, and realize and appreciate what we bring to the table. Maybe I'm the the elder statesman on this call. I don't know, but but wouldn't wouldn't you all agree that there's something generational that we're dealing with right now? That the le- that the old leadership or or the leadership that's sort of in place didn't grow up being coddled and nurtured and and got the participation trophy and all those things. So they're now having to be retrained about how to be engaging with their employees and understand how that employees have feelings, that they're human beings like everybody else. And so you and HR have had this this real re-education process going on with your leadership teams. I think it'll be less of an issue going forward as young leaders step up into those positions because they grew up in that different environment. Yeah, I think that may be part of it, Scott. I think the piece that resonated with me that Christy said was, you will always have, as a leader, you'll have obstacles come about, but you got to go back to the basics, I think. And what I mean by the, to the basics, like, and they're simple, but they, they seem more complex than they are. But how did you measure productivity when before? It's all about getting in front of it and leading versus wondering, oh, oh no, you know, I can't see that person. So now I just don't know how productive that person is. But if you go back to your core as a leader, well, how did you know that that person was productive when you weren't looking at him? Like they could have be down the hall. You know, what's the difference? So it, it's sometimes just bringing them back to the fundamental basics and helping them through that. I think that's one. The vulnerability for me, and Christy knows this because that's another reason why her and I have been friends for so long, is because we both practice that. And I think when employees see that, that, you know, it's okay. And I did it myself when we went to remote, like, listen, you guys, we're going to have to figure this out. I don't have all the answers. We're going to have to figure this whole thing out together. Right. right? And if you're not getting enough communication from me, I'm going to communicate as much as I can. But if you're not getting enough, like you need to Harriet, I'm not getting enough. Right. I'm not a mind reader. And I think it's just having those honest conversations. And Suzanne, I know I cut you off. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, Suzanne's got a comment. I would love to hear too. No, no, it, it, this is great. I mean, this is a great conversation. You know, it's interesting, this whole conversation of productivity, and, and you hit it, Scott, when you talked about different generation really understanding this. What's at the root of this? And, you know, for me, isn't this about trust? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Underlying all of that discomfort about not seeing someone, not knowing what they're doing, isn't that what what this is all about. And so that is where you have to start the conversation because I agree. I mean, someone can be sitting in their office all day and be right there and not be delivering results and outcomes is what we should be measuring, not not the FaceTime. So there's been a lot of debate about what actually does productivity mean? How do you actually measure that in today's environment versus perhaps in the past? But I think sort of reorienting, rewiring leaders' brains a bit and, again, thinking about the trust is the important quotient for me. Yeah. yeah. Isn't it interesting, the conversation around trust and then empowerment? We say we want more empowerment and leaders want more empowerment, but then they want to control where and how people get work done. And I think it's it's just a really interesting intersection. Yeah. It's very interesting in that, you know, there's been a slow shift and you talk about trust, which I think Suzanne, you hit the nail on the head because it all, there, there's not going to be success if you don't lay that foundation and the acceleration with COVID, but also I think the employee experience and the expectations of employees is changing so dramatically. So to be able to keep up with that and building these trusting relationships within the organization is key. But with that, you know, Susie, I'd be curious if you had to name three top skills that leaders need to be focusing on or they need to really be developing right now, whether they're in a hybrid on-site work environment with all the people have been through and the, I would say the emotional exhaustion. Could you highlight a couple of key areas for, for our Ooh. viewers? Yeah. yeah, sure, sure. So, you know, this is something that we talk about uh, quite a bit with our emerging leaders. And actually through COVID, we ran one of our early career development programs, believe it or not. And couple of things that come to mind for me, Mary, we definitely need to build leaders who appreciate individuals' whole self, right? And easier said than done. We've, we've sort of talked about that here in, in our first few minutes, but, you know, the well-being, really appreciating a person's entire self, I think that there is some skill <laughs> to doing that and understanding and appreciating that. So I think that's one. We have certainly seen this digital transformation change our businesses, and it certainly has for Xerox. And so we need to build the capability around resiliency, right? I think that's another aspect that's important for us to be able to be competitive and successful, not just as individuals, but as for-profit businesses at the end of the day, right? So we need to be able to compete. And doing so, we need to have environments where we are resilient and adaptable to change our business models, our people, our leaders, all of that. So, you know, those are a couple of things, Mary, that I think are really important. That's fantastic. Thank you. Susie, the two of you will complement each other so well. Those are those are the two that I would have said, but I can build a little on them. I think on the first one on, you know, 
being able to engage with people as whole people. There's like a suite of capabilities that tie into that. We've mentioned a lot of them already, like, you know, your own self-awareness, your ability to be vulnerable, emotional intelligence, all of those things are are what's going to allow you to see another person as a whole person. And then my second one was going to be resilience and adaptability. So I'm basically plus one, plus one. (laughs) We would talk about growth mindset, which ties into being able to question assumptions and really reframe uh, your understanding of things. It's really a lot easier said than done. And another similar skill is what we would call learning agility. So again, being able to redefine yourself, redefine your role, redefine your business, redefine your product. And both of those capabilities there has to be some level of organizational commitment to them because if the CEO and the C-suite are not willing to see employees as whole people, it makes it really difficult for frontline managers to do that. And if the CEO and C-suite aren't willing to have a growth mindset and question assumptions and rethink the business and the products, then it makes it really difficult for anyone else in the organization to do that. So I also want to emphasize that, you know, if you want leaders to be doing things differently, you can't just point to others and say, do that. It, it has to start at the top of the organization and really be a cultural shift. That's fantastic. Thank you. I know Deb was going to share a comment as well as Suzanne has one more. So why don't we start with Deb and then Suzanne? Yeah, I just wanted to actually build on what Suzanne said earlier about trust, because I 100% agree that's the foundational piece. And one of the things that you know I've learned over the years is in building trust, you got to start with caring. So mm-hmm. people have to believe that you care about them. And if you if they if you do and they genuinely see that and believe that, then you know that becomes a mutual relationship where you can get to a deeper level and have more conversations. And I think in this environment, in the COVID environment in particular, and, and just remote in general. That's so important to remember because everything is becomes much more transactional because everybody's busy going from Zoom call to Zoom call to Zoom call. And to really make sure as leaders that you're, you know, just asking people how are they and how are they doing and what can you do to help and sort of training people throughout the organization. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I think there's no greater time to show how much we care as, as leaders and as organizations and to give give a sense of just, it's okay. Wherever someone is at, I think that the organizations can impact people's lives that way, is to just give them the permission to show up as they are. And some days or some weeks are better than others. But there's a connected sense that I think organizations are able to make with their employees. And that trust is, you know, Suzanne started this conversation. So thank you, Deb. Suzanne. So there was... There's another point that I wanted to raise that's just struck me here. And, you know, I think we saw this through sort of our lockdown situations. And it's not just communication, but there's a level of transparency and honesty that I think people have been yearning for. And that I think many leaders, or at least the leaders who have demonstrated a willingness to sort of go there, have, I think seen very positive engagement from their employees. Mm -hmm. And I was just thinking about the article just recently that uh, was it John Foley, the Peloton CEO just, right, just wrote. 
And just think about the way that he shifted his thinking and then sort of publicly acknowledged, I messed up, right? And not only did I change my view, but I was wrong. And I just thought, wow, that was powerful. And I think if we have more leaders who embrace that way of thinking and operating and for then the younger generation and others to see, you think about the impact that'll have not only on society, but but our performance and how investors and the communities view our organizations, sort of our greater stakeholders. I think that that can be quite powerful. So just, okay. just another point I wanted to make. Thank you. No, that was that was hard. I had the same takeaway in, in reading his statement of how much we as a world need to hear honest. And when you make a mistake to own it and to, to move on. So Suzanne, I know you were going to make a quick comment. And then I know that Harriet was going to go on to Suzanne with another related question. When Deb was sharing about caring as the kind of underpinning for trust, I was just also thinking about the shadow side of that. I know that as a CEO, and I think a lot of my leaders, it's it can be a burden to take on people's whole self. <laughs> and especially in the context of the year that we've just been through, you know, you might be asking someone how they are, and then all of a sudden they're really distraught. And so I think another thing that is really important for leaders to invest in right now is our own self-care, because in order to like be emitting caring for everyone in your whole organization and sitting there and being present to everything they're really going through, it's really easy to be taking all that on and it's overwhelming. So I think that's a new practice, especially for senior leaders who we're all used to just go, 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 go all the time to actually force ourselves to invest in whether it's meditation or exercise or even mental health support because we now have to take on the full well-being of our employees and team members and that has an impact on us too. Susie, I love that and Mary Malone knows, you know, some of the things that we've done at ABT, but we we just recently launched our business employee resource groups. And the first one that we actually launched, which was in December, was a mental wellness org business employee resource group. And I happen to be the sponsor of that because I'm a firm believer. And in fact, we just just the other day, I think it was yesterday, sent out some tips from some of our leaders. And my tip was, you know, I can't take care of anybody else until I take care of myself, right? Because you feel like I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. But then it's, it's kind of like a car. I'm out of fuel. Like I can't take care anymore. So I think it's really important to not forget yourself in that process. And that looks different for everyone, whether it's make sure you're getting the right exercise, eating, you know, simple things or just things that just rejuvenate you so that you can keep moving on. I'm a firm believer of that. So thanks for thanks for sharing that. Let's switch gears just a just a tiny bit. We've talked a little bit about communication. And obviously with the world going remote last year, it really put a stressor on our technology infrastructure, right? In some places more than others. So Suzanne, tell me a little bit about what Xerox did through all of that. Was there anything, you know, I mean, obviously a technology organization, right? So you guys probably got it all figured out, but if, were there any tips that you guys gave or 
certain things that you did to just make it much more productive. Yeah, thank you, Harriet. Listen, every technology company has its issues, right? And if anyone should tell you otherwise, then you should be suspect. You know, for me, let me talk about sort of internal and then sort of external in our in our clients. You know, internally, when we had had the executive level discussions about moving everyone to working remotely, we knew that there were a series of things that we wanted to ensure were working, right, before we did so. Obviously, the technology infrastructure was one of them. You know, could you, in effect, have tens of thousands of people actually go home on a day's notice? And so we actually had to come to a point where we said, even if we aren't ready, this is still the right thing to do. And we weathered through that, right? Yes, there were a couple of hiccups, but very quickly, People were up and running on WebEx and then it been, and Teams. And we did all of this, you know, sort of like the, the plane that's flying and changing the tires in the air. We did that. In fact, there was a conversation. Well, we'll wait till everyone comes back to do, you know, certain upgrades. And then finally, everyone's, you know, it was, no, we're going to do it along the way. And, and uh, no different than our, you know, our customers or clients might experience it. So one of the things that I think we did well was through our regular weekly manager forums, which we've been hosting through COVID, we use that to manage the change. So we continue to do these more than a year later, these forums. And so that then became with the changing agenda. Okay, we've got the technology play and the technology infrastructure that's changing. We use that to enable change in the organization. From an external and our customer standpoint, obviously our stakeholders are critical to our business success. We had more than 10,000 employees who did not go home because they were deemed essential. So we support and have supported hospitals, universities, you name it, institutions. Uh, We brought the USS Comfort here into the New York Harbor We were part of that team to establish that facility and a number of different customer sites like that from everything from software to print capacity and capabilities to security. I mean, our organization is very well known for remote and secure print capabilities. And think about that. All of us sent our employees home without any thought to security. And as we have seen from all the data and unfortunately all the instances, cybersecurity on the rise, we know many corporations have been touched by this. And so we have been able to reinforce that capability with our customers and they have been all the more benefited from that. So those are just a couple of things, Harriet. I that I wanted to share. Oh, thanks, Suzanne. Anybody else want to chime in at all on that specific topic? You know, one thing that I can just talk a little bit about and just how technology has changed the insurance, you know, industry, you think about even just ride shares and Ubers and most people, not, not everyone is owning their own car. But one of the things that we had to do is with the cameras on cell phones, you know, we don't need to send adjusters to accidents anymore to take pictures of damaged vehicles. Like our customers can take a picture of their damaged vehicle 
and upload it, we can adjust the claim and, and, and actually get to our customers a check or ask for additional information much quicker than we were able to do that before. When you think about drones now, we can use drones to look over people's roofs, to check for hail damage. Now we don't have to have adjusters climb on rooftops to be able to adjust the, the damage, which a is safer for our employees and B, you know, we have much better accurate, you know, pictures. So it's just all the different things that technology advances changes that requires us to look at how and where and when we get work done and the impact that it has on consumers. Thanks, Christine. And I think with COVID and safety, you know, again, there were things probably that were being tested that just moved to the front of the line of this is now the way we do it. I see that with so many different elements and technology and outside of that. Yeah, I think one, you know, one interesting thing is, is, and Susie, you know, I know you mentioned it a little bit, but with people not having to commute, and we are in a lot of larger metropolitan areas where commutes can be longer, we saw a huge uptake in our employees taking leadership and employee development programs. And that was whether it was leaning in on the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, or, you know, now they found this extra time and how do they repurpose it? And, you know, one of the things that I think is just really, you know, interesting is, is you can either give your time away or you can be really purposeful in how you use the time that you have that you found. And we found a significant uptake in our employees' looking at the skills that we had defined for the future and investing their time into developing those skills, whether those are from individual small coursework to our micro-credentialing and or to, you know, getting advanced degrees. Christy, I definitely have seen that here at Xerox. And, you know, it's interesting for us, you know, a lot of my L&D team, who had been accustomed to doing in-person learning and training sessions and having to move completely to write 100% remote and standing up the platforms quickly to do so. And, and it's interesting to see how the numbers have increased, right, in terms of the learning, whether it's as people look to upskill themselves, which is a whole nother conversation we need to have as well. So We've definitely seen an uptick there. Yeah. And it's funny, Suzanne, and and I think all of you are 100% correct. We're seeing it with many, many of our clients, uh, especially on the consulting side. And a lot of that is because in this two-dimensional world, which is what we live in right now and what we're doing, it's very hard to think about advancement. If you can't feel the energy, you can't have that touch point very closely with your employees, it is a real paradigm shift for people to think about how do I advance my career? Well, I've got to educate myself because I'm not feeling I'm getting that workplace education, that knowledge transfer by not being in the workplace with other people who can give me that knowledge transfer. Mm. Uh, this is a little bit of a segue, but I, I think an interesting topic, you know, maybe you want to dive deeper in later, but at Verb, we're having a lot of conversations about how to create an equitable environment for advancement when some people are in person and some people aren't because so much of that advancement comes from the social connection of, oh, you know, you had 12 coffees with that person or you go for lunch, Mm. just sit next to each other. And you're like, gosh, I just, I don't know why, but I just really like them versus the person that you only see, you know, one hour a week in an online meeting. So I think, you know, what you're talking about, Scott, is has some equity implications that are really important too. That's fantastic. That we could, 
maybe we'll go back to that at the end because I think we could take a deep dive into that and it's it's fantastic. Shifting gears a little bit from technology to compensation. And Deb, we talked a lot about, and I know I, you know, one of the top questions we're hearing from the strategic HR side of our business from our clients is when we went remote, you know, a lot of people took advantage of the opportunity to go to wonderful places that they wouldn't be able to spend a lot of time in otherwise, whether it was a camp or a remote place, or they decided to relocate. And so our clients are saying, you know, how do we, how do we manage this from a compensation standpoint where people are now saying, I'm not going back to my city life. I'm going to stay in this location. And it's a topic that comes up over and over again. And so, you know, I was curious, you know, with with all of the work that you're doing at Semler Brasi, how are you managing these conversations? Because again, it's it's kind of happening as we speak. Yeah, well, it's it's a it's definitely a hot topic, and I don't think anybody really has the answers yet. But historically, location mattered a lot, right? A lot of big companies said, "Gee, can these roles be done, you know, outside the hubs in a lower cost location?" And if it's a lower cost of living then it's a lower comp set for most of the roles. And there was a lot of focus on that at a lot of companies. And just even going, you know, when we went into COVID, we were working with a lot of companies that were focused on that. Then COVID happened, everyone went remote. And now the question is, you pick back up there or do you do something completely different? So, you know, and then you go into really the models that you're talking about. Are they, does the role need to be fully in the office? If it does, then location is going to matter as as it relates to comp. Again, you know, outside of like executive roles or certain roles that have like a global level. If you're hybrid, it's probably still going to matter because if you're hybrid, that means you really can't move too far outside of, you know, your jurisdiction because you're going to need to be in the office uh, a few days a week. But if you're remote, that's where, you know, the real question comes in because, you know, some companies are coming out and saying, hey, you know, you can work from anywhere now, like a Spotify. You can work from anywhere and we're going to pay you New York and San Francisco rates. Well, that's great, you know, as a marketing tool and as a, you know, a talent retention and attraction tool, but that obviously could get very expensive. The flip side is some companies that were moving a lot of people to low-cost locations are saying, hmm, you know, could we just say like, this is the new price for the role and you could do it, you know, from anywhere. You could, you can stay in New York and work out of your house, but you know, it's, it's, we would have moved this role to, you know, Salt Lake City or Dallas or you know, North Carolina. And so we are going to pay X percent less. And that's, you know, a decision that you make. You don't have commuting costs. You don't have you know, certain other costs and you, and you can move further, you know, you can move wherever you want. So those are really the discussions that people are having. And I think the biggest risk and fear in all of that is, is whatever you do, you know, you have to be very consistent on it because it's got to be equitable and, you know, you really got to have a policy and a framework. And it's something once you start communicating that's very hard to dial back. So I think, you know, a lot of the people that we talk to are going very slowly on this and, and just starting to talk about it and really thinking about the pros and cons of which of those approaches you want to take. Yeah, interesting. And and there's such a ripple effect, you know, from the talent end of it, we hear 
individuals who are looking to join organizations that have more flexibility and are going to let them work and play where they want to be. Mm-hmm. And you hear people that are looking to make a move because their company is either supporting it or not supporting it. You know, some want to be back in the office and have everybody there. So it's a story being written real time, as you said, Deb. And I think that the key takeaway that you just said is really being thoughtful and move slowly because you can't rewind. But I know it's it's a very hot topic that, you know, it's not a decision just on compensation. It's then a, a decision on how are you going to, and Harriet and I have had some really interesting conversations. How are you going to recruit and retain the best with the decision that you're making, especially in the different industries? So I don't know if anyone has any comments that they'd like to add to that, because I think it's a really interesting topic. It, I mean, just, just one more comment on that, yeah. because I think, I do think the cultural aspect of it is so important. And, you know, even pre the pandemic over the years, you know, there were some companies that went largely remote or moved a yeah. whole bunch of, and then they dialed that back, right? And because there is, is you know, how do you maintain that connectivity, that culture, that you know, feeling of collaboration, right. and and the point that I think you raised, Susie, about the the equitableness of you know how people get promoted and you know get career advancements. So again, I think it's something that you have to be really, you know, it, it, it can sound really enticing in this moment to sort of offer that. But I think, you know, it's something companies have to be really, really cautious with. Yeah. So, so the only thing I might want to add to that is compensation strategy is highly linked to location strategy. So realist, I mean, the two most expensive things in most companies' P&Ls are the human resource element and then the cost of real estate. And they're highly linked. One thing we've seen, and, and this is something that's always been a factor of location strategy is what are we looking at for the wage contours of going into Memphis, Tennessee versus being in New York City versus being in San Francisco versus being in Texas. So all of that's always been a factor of these, these analytics that a company like JLL does when they're advising corporations on where to locate. What happened last year was the dispersion and the bifurcation of the workplace is now saying to, to, to organizations, look, you can keep your compensation if you're staying within a geographical area where where you are. So if you're living and working in a Greenwich, Connecticut, that's kind of the same wage contour as as if you're working in New York City itself. But if we pick you up and move you to Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina with your whole department, we're going to adjust that compensation because, by the way, it's better for the company, but it's also equally as good for you to go there. Interesting. Thank you. Christy, were you going to make a comment? Just a little bit of a different spin on that. And I agree with Scott said, for, for all state, we've used national bands with our salaried employees. And so we don't, and we weren't in, we didn't have a large population in big areas like New York City or the Bay Area. So we didn't have that kind of fluctuation. For our non-exempt employees, we used uh, geographical differentials and we plan to keep those. But one thing we did test during COVID, particularly around some hot skills, so for example, data scientists or uh, modelers, we actually created a geograph, a national search around that. And what we did find through that is our applicant pool more than doubled and our diverse population more than doubled as a result of that. And so there may be some skills and, and jobs in which we are actually okay with going national and placing them where we think we can get the best talent versus having to be in a particular talent center that's already established for all state. Excellent point. That's exactly what we're doing here with our contact center employees. We've just launched a 
national recruiting strategy, right? So instead of what was the rule we had at Ball State, I don't remember, but here I think it was within like a 50 mile radius or 50. Yeah. And so you, you suddenly broaden that to national, you've broadened your talent pool. And, you know, we're doing that specifically for our contact center employees. Harriet, I fully agree with that comment because I think this whole approach certainly widens our talent pools in so many areas. And, you know, we are all looking, I, I hope, to expand our aperture as it relates to our pipeline for certain roles. And, you know, if in fact we're taking an approach that certain key skills can only be sought in one location or limited locations, I, I think that that's not very helpful from a talent strategy. No doubt. Yeah, I'll just share. We're a, a software company, but we're seeing a lot of upward pressure on compensation because even though candidates might be based in Denver or some non-major you know, market, they're applying for jobs in San Francisco, <clears throat> so I'm in Austin, and I'm having to compete for that talent who's also applying for jobs at companies with much higher compensation. So we We've seen incredible upward pressure on roles in our our world in the software world. So, and just we, we've seen that across you know kind of across the client base that we work with, particularly for the technology roles. I want to go back to like almost the first question that was asked, and because I think the manager plays such a huge role in the retention and the attraction of uh, talent. And I keep telling my leaders that in this world now, even though we think we can widen our aperture of where talent exists, it also means other companies are widening their aperture on where talent exists, which means your talent is susceptible for being recruited away too. And if you aren't building that you know, relationship, if you aren't caring for and or providing the right environment, then they may become disengaged and start looking for other opportunities because they don't have to move necessarily either now. And so I think it just continues to raise the importance of the role of the leader and how their connection to the organization gets translated because most people may not have an affinity for the organization, but they have an affinity for the leader. And if that gets severed, then, you know, sort of all bets are off. Yeah. That's an excellent point, Christy. You're right. It does still come full circle back to leadership, investing in leadership, caring, trust, everything that we just talked about. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Another shift, Scott, you and I have been working on ADT strategy, right? As we uh, are looking at our workplace and, you know, the various levers that we have, whether it's the headquarters or the contact centers or our hundreds of branches across the United States. But, you know, I'm a microcosm in your entire world and dealing with your clients. What, what's going on out there? How are you even sleeping at night? <laughs> I wouldn't be. <laughs> well, the good thing is we have 100,000 strong. So you know, there's always somebody sleeping at JLL somewhere in the world when I'm awake. So that's good. I believe firmly that there's been a shift. Picture humans sort of like a beehive. You stoke the beehive and everybody goes scattering. And then they're trying to figure out what went wrong and what's happened. And all these things happen. And then all of a sudden it quiets down. And people start rethinking what's happening. Same thing like the bees. And all of a sudden you start coming back together and you start collaborating and talking about 
like this sort of webinar. So let me sort of give you some, some stats that we did, again, from the research group at JLL. In May of last year, we went out and we surveyed a significant number of organizations totaling about a million employees worldwide. And we asked them, what's your thinking? How can we help you? How can we be engaged with you? What are you thinking about strategy and workplace and office space? And remember, you had this six-foot social distance, which is really not a social distance. It's really a just a distance. Whether it's social or work, it doesn't matter. It's stay six feet away from me with a mask, without a mask. And it was very confusing. The data we were getting globally from different people, whether it was Fauci or the CDC or internationally, was extraordinarily confusing. So we went to these, these, these employers and we said, you've got all these, these hundreds of thousands of employees. What are you thinking and what are you doing? So let me give you some stats. May of last year, and we broke it out into five different grids, office-centric, office-hybrid, hybrid, hybrid remote, and remote virtual, right, which is 100%. No one comes to the office. You, you, you sort of live and work where you are, and that's what it is. And everyone came back, and, and we tabulate all the results. And May of last year, 18% of the corporations we were talking to said that they would be office-centric again very soon once this thing got behind them. 33% they would be a office hybrid model. A third said that they would be hybrid, predominantly hybrid, which is pretty much a three-day week or two-day week scattered. Only 12% said that they would be hybrid remote, which means really almost virtual, but not 100% virtual. And 2% would be 100% virtual. Fast forward, we just went back and we met to these same companies and said, now what are you thinking? The vaccine's there. We have an efficacy rate associated with it. Everybody's going, at, listen, no matter whether you're in your office or work, not working or working, everybody's going out to dinner with family and friends. I, I see it all over this country, when I, and I've been traveling quite a bit for business. I'm on an airplane. Every seat is taken right now. Everybody masks up. You wipe down all the things you have to do on the airplane, but everybody's there. So uh, we're all scratching our heads saying, well, if you're okay to sit on a plane next to somebody you have no idea where they've been and who they are, why would you all of a sudden be fear, fearful about going back to the workplace? And what has changed? So we asked these companies again. And here's the latest stats. May of last year, 18% were office-centric. Today, 30% are office-centric. Saying we're, by ADT standard, right? Jim DeVries comes out and says, hey, we're going to be three days a week starting next week. We're going to be five days a week starting July 7th. Jamie Dimon, JPMC, said the same thing. I want everybody back. Now, his was a combination of I'm enticing you to come back. I'm inducing you to come back. And I'm also warning you a little bit if you don't come back. Right. So without really saying that last piece of it, office hybrid, which is, you know, that that sort of I'm going to do four days a week. Maybe everybody takes off Fridays or Mondays or we shift whatever that's going to be. Well, it was 33 percent last year. Forty percent are now saying they're going to do that office hybrid. The full hybrid model shrunk, believe it or not, because people are going, wait a second. It's sunny out. The weather's great. I think we're not seeing as many people. And this is just U.S. based for the moment. I mean, I can get international and talk about a whole different platform, but. The full hybrid model went from 35% last year to 25% today. And obviously, the hybrid remote went from 12% last year to 4% now. And then remote virtual, down to 1%. And the only ones that really stay in that platform are, for the most part, heads down. Uh, for example, in, in, the, in the insurance world, like my sister is, is an underwriter. She's been working at home for the last decade, right? So her life doesn't change. And you'll see that in a lot of heads down environments. And then clearly, on the technology side, you're technology-based companies are comfortable working from in a, in a remote environment. But at the same time, Facebook just leased a million square feet in, mid, in midtown Manhattan. Amazon just leased a million two square feet. That's going to be filled up with bodies between now and 2024. So you have to look at that ramp up over time and what we're dealing with. 
The next thing I think I want to just sort of touch on, and I'm sure everybody's going to want to jump all over me about this a little bit, but this is really in the HR world and the world that you all live in. But we collaborate with, with many in HR, IT, C-suite. And when you think about the remote or the hybrid work strategy, it is going to be there to stay. It's going to be in varying degrees, as I just articulated, and it's going to continue to shift back to an office environment as people want that engagement. They want to have that knowledge transfer, direct one-to-one. They want to have that career advancement. They want to have that touch point where they do go out with their, their colleagues and you know have that beer in the afternoon. I mean, I, if anyone who's traveled to London, four o'clock in the afternoon, everybody in London shuts down and they're at the pubs and they're throwing back pints of beer. That's all gone now and everybody's missing it. And if you think about needing to have a psychologist to help you work through that, th- those kind of withdrawals, that's a big piece that's happening. So the things that we're, we're, we're hearing from the HR world and the stuff that we're now deploying back to them from a real estate strategy standpoint is if you look at a triangle and you say you have productivity and outcomes on top, you have employee and, and engagement on the bottom right-hand corner, you have customer success, right, on the other side, think about how you get the sales environment. I mean, even, even selling, that day-to-day selling piece, customer touch points, productivity has been down. Companies won't admit it, but it has been down. And you can see it's not reflected that much in share price, but it is reflected in actual revenue components. But when you bring that triangle together, the kinds of things that that you and the HR world are really talking through is, what about the corporate culture? What differentiates Allstate from their insurance competitor? Why would somebody want to be at Allstate with the insurance competitor? Well, right now, it's either compensation, 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 right? Or maybe somebody does want to work 100% from home or maybe somebody wants to be in the office. So you're struggling with all those different things. The next piece that we're dealing with is the physical space component. How do you get people back to the office? Well, in urban environments, it's a little bit more challenging because to get to the workplace, many of them are doing mass transportation. Now, while you may, in your work environment, trust the fact that your company is maintaining a certain protocol of etiquette and cleanliness, and they put in reverse osmosis in the water, and they added MERF filters in the HVAC, you're still getting on a subway with a lot of people who you don't know, and you don't know where they've been, and, and there's challenges around that. You're still getting an elevator with other companies that work in that same building that may not maintain the same sort of protocols that you do. And you're going to have that little, as we said earlier, or I said earlier, there's a psychological component about how you get employees back to that place. You can make them feel safe and wanted and welcomed in your space. All that space between the place they leave and the place they go to is something that's going to be challenging in and of itself. Next thing is digital space. What happens in digital space? What are the things that, that you and HR and IT can do to make the digital space we're doing right now much more engaging? I don't know about any of you, but I remember that I was doing family Zoom calls and I had friends want Friday wine things where you know, we'd send a bottle of wine around and we'd do things like this. I'm thinking that employers are going to start having to do things like that to create that engagement until they can be in the presence of their own employees going forward. And then the last thing I'll give you is, you know, trying to keep to, to, to my short time frame to do this is I'll give you a little bit of short and long-term prognostications. Inside of the next 24 months, you will see 75 to 80% RTO, return to office, in a very, very big way because people are like lemmings. If they see ADT doing it, all of ADT's competitors are going to want to do it. If they see Xerox doing it, you're going to see HP and everybody else jumping in the bed. Why aren't we doing it? They're back to work, right? And that's what's going to happen. They're going to want the culture. They're going to want that knowledge transfer. They're going to want the advancement. They're going to want that social work play interplay. 
and you're going to see that productivity be part of it. I remember some of my colleagues when we, when we graduated college, they went off to Goldman Sachs or they went off to um, Morgan Stanley at the time, and they would complain about having to work 14 hours a day, right? But that was part of paying their dues. How do you even get engaged in that environment today in a digital virtual environment? I do think one other thing is that the workplace and, and what you do in the office, it is going to dr change dr dramatically, kind of like the electric car is changing what's happening on our roads today. I do believe that there will be a four-day work week for the lion's share of the population that we have here. It may be staggered. It may be scattered. But we've proven now that even though it's, a four, it's, it's still going to be a five-day work week, but it's going to be a four-day in the office environment. And people are going to find out how to be much more productive, use the tools that we've given them through this adverse environment. And then I, I think humans in nature is going to bring us back together and continue to separate us. And hopefully we don't have another one of these COVID environments for a long time. Scott, that's that's been unbelievably helpful. Just even, you know, sharing what your clients said last year compared to what they're saying right now, because we're feeling it here as well. And as you mentioned, you know, we went, we've announced that we're going return to office. And I, I tell you, and we talked a little bit about leaders and, you know, exhibiting specific leadership skills. I think one that's going to be really prominent during this time is change management. Yeah. Right. How are leaders going to lead through potentially 75 to 80 percent of companies going to return to office? Right. I know that's what we're doing right now. We've gotten a lot of questions from our employees. We're fielding all of those. We're giving a transition period, but it, it's top of mind. It really, it really definitely is top of yeah. mind. And I think a lot of that's going to be tied to protocols, right? As I said, you know, how do you get employees to feel safe in the workplace? Mm -hmm. You can't control outside that. You can't control their own home, but when they get there, the things you're going to do. One thing I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for is, look, we've been back at JLL here in, in, in our New York office, and I have been traveling quite a bit, is that we've maintained some really good human hygiene elements that didn't yeah. exist before. <laughs> yep. I, think the, I think the mask is a wonderful thing, right? I also think that, guess what? You come into the office with a sniffle or a cough, people are going to just stone you, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I was one of those people, bronchitis every year, and I come in packing up a lung, but you know what? If I even sniffle, I won't go into the office because everyone else is going to look at you in a weird don't way. Be coming, don't be coming into the ADT office with any bronchitis, I'll tell you that. Exactly. And then the last thing is, you know, what's going to happen? Are, are companies going to really mandate this vaccine passport, right? Mm -hmm. How does how do you in the HR world deal with it? Is it controversial, right? Does it does Very. it violate, you know, certain private ethics yeah, that you have? No doubt. No doubt. I mean, like, you know what? Me and my daughter are getting our second dose tomorrow. But I tell you, my husband still is not on the bandwagon. And you and I talked about that. Right. And so, you know, I, I, and I think he eventually will, but he's not there yet. So, you know, what do you do? Right. I, and, we talked to one client who said that they're going to have pilot this policy where if you're vaccinated, they're going to sit you on a floor with everybody who's vaccinated and you don't have to wear a mask. And then if you're not vaccinated, they're going to sit you on another floor with people who are not vaccinated and you have to wear a mask and they're going to um, stagger it that way. That's interesting. That's yeah, really that's, You had the Bloomberg article about no vaccine, no desk even. Right? Correct. So. <laughs> they're, one of, they're one of our clients and they're asking, we're a facilities management. Uh, you know, we support them. We're sitting there. How do we even monitor that? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I'll uh, first open it up to if, if any of the participants have any questions, please make sure to put that in, in the chat so that we can answer them. But I do have one question to ask the group. And we, we touched a little bit on this, but it'd be good to get everyone's perspective if they have one. You know, I think we talked a little bit about how companies are trying to differentiate themselves because whether it's you know moving to a national recruiting strategy and what have you seen as the difference of attracting top talent potentially today versus 18 months from now when we've either returned to office 75% or just the world has somewhat normalized. What do you think from a company's perspective they need to do to differentiate themselves? I just think many companies 18 months ago, two years ago, weren't taking stands, whether that's around diversity, equity, inclusion, same as whether that's around political statements, whether that is around you know, what's happened around COVID or wearing masks. And, you know, more companies had to lean in on making sure that what they see aligns to their values. And what I've seen is a lot of our current employees and applicants want to know what the company stands for and if they're willing to back up what they say with actions. And so the say-do gap, I think, has to continue to be closed in order for your employees to stay and for you to attract the type of employees who may share the same values, you know, as you. You're spot on. I, you know, being in the search business, we hear it every single day, you know, is that the top talent are really qualifying the companies and the leadership and they're looking at how they responded during COVID. So thank you, Christy. Suzanne, I know you had a, a addition to this. Yeah, thank you. A couple of comments. I fully agree with what Christy has said. And I think about my interview, hundreds of candidates, as you can imagine, in my role. And the topic of culture has really shifted. Now it is becoming the major conversation that people want to talk about and or come back to, right? So I understand the job, but I want to talk to you more about this. I want to understand more about the company, your values, who you are. It's very different. And so one of the things we've been mindful of is in our communications, always linking it back to who are we as a company, our mission, our purpose, and oh, by the way, our values. And so now we're being very pointed to tie those things back together. I think the the other thing for me regarding the question, Harriet, is one around leadership. I continue to believe through thick and thin, any sort of situation, organizations need to have really strong leaders that will attract and keep people in, in their organizations. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Christy. Anybody else have anything else to add on that topic? I think Deb has a comment to, to contribute here to that. Oh, yeah. I was, I was going to say that the one other thing that I think companies are, are focusing on and, and wrestling with, and, and Scott mentioned it a little bit with sort of the virtual wine happy hours or whatever, but actually as you're trying to get people to come back to the office and trying to create recreate that culture, what can you do for connectivity with your employees? You know, some companies offering free food at certain times and trying to get people to the cafeteria to gather more. Some companies, you know, organizing certain 
events, but I think a lot of focus on that, both in the short term and maybe longer term, because again, that's going to be, I think that's something people are very much missing. And that's going to be a differentiator if there's a, if there's a sense of community. Mm, excellent. Very true. We have a, a question from one of our, our viewers, and, and, and this has shifted so much, is what are the key outcomes HR leaders should be focused on today versus maybe what you were focused on pre-COVID, if there are changes? I, I think one of the things that we really need to focus on is this whole idea of reskilling, upskilling, really thinking about building the capabilities of our organizations to operate differently. You know, one of the things I've said many times is that this is not simply about where people are physically located. That's only an aspect of this. I do think this whole idea of thinking about skills of the future is paramount. You know, sort of two two data points for me. Last year, you know, we had heard that one of the hottest jobs was around contact tracers, or, you know, medical officers, right? And none of us even saw that coming. And then I read uh, something that Deloitte had published about 25, 20, 25 to 30% of skills that were acquired in 2018 would be irrelevant by 2022, right? So just think about that as a percentage of your workforce and those numbers, you know, once they sink in, it's, it's, it's pretty striking. So those are things that I'm thinking about, we're thinking about, and certainly I think other CHROs and other HR leaders are concerned about. Great. Thank you. I would echo Suzanne's comments. We are year four into what we call an employability journey, but it's essentially looking at our business strategy, understanding the skills that are going to be required, not only today, but in the future. And building curriculum and experiences for our employees to ensure that they can stay relevant. And our goal, our promise around employability is that our employees will have the skills relevant for them to keep a job at Allstate or someplace else at the same or greater pay so that they are not set by the wayside and realize that the world has sort of surpassed them and now they find themselves you know, working in a company for 30 years in which now their skill, you know, their job has been automated and or changed and they don't have the relevancy to be able to keep up. It's fantastic. Again, it goes back to thinking about the whole person, right? Taking care of them now and into the future. So thank you, Christy. I was just going to add another outcome that I think is um, extremely important given everything we've talked about is team health. And we actually have been piloting a really interesting tool product from a company called Olumo, and it's a team health assessment tool. And so it gives you a kind of a weekly pulse on how healthy your different teams are by location, by leader and so forth. And so, you know, we've relied a lot on culture surveys and employee engagement surveys, but so much of what we talked about today is the importance of the manager and the quality of that team experience on whether or not you're going to be able to retain someone or even keep them inspired, motivated and productive. So I think that's going to be a trend in the future is evaluating the the health and performance of teams. Yeah, I thought we could maybe close out with, you know, maybe some advice from the panelists to our participants of, 
you know, as we emerge out of this pandemic, what what advice would you give your fellow colleagues out there from a leadership, HR standpoint, real estate, like across the board? What advice would you give them? A real estate and facility standpoint, flexibility is key. Probably the most important thing, flexibility in where you're allowing them to work from. And if they come into the office, flexibility, even within the office. So when you think about that, perhaps not having assigned workstations or assigned offices, giving people more soft seating. I mean, they just they just spent the last year working from their living room or their basement or their attic, whatever that is. Give them that same environment, but allow them to be more collaborative in a soft seating environment in their workplace right now, because that's what they're hungry for to get back to. So flexibility, I think, is probably the most important thing in the real estate world. I would say it was certainly the case before the pandemic, but so much more now is just employee wellness and just really, really focusing on that in all aspects. Because I think that's something that can be a brand differentiator. I think it's something that is a demonstration of you know, how much you care about your employees. And I think there's you know a wide, wide range of products and services out there now. You know, many of them offered virtually, but that can be easily scalable for a large organization. I think that's super important. And beyond that, I think some of the other stuff that we you know, covered here, I do think companies really need to proceed cautiously and slowly as far as long-term kind of changes to the, to the work model and stuff. Thank you, Deb. Surprising, but I would say invest in the human skills. You know, we all talk about, you know, the need to be able to be vulnerable and be authentic and have difficult conversations, but People don't learn those things from books. So it's a really, really valuable investment to, to have your team and especially those early managers have those skills. So spot on. Thank you. Christy, any closing comments? I think it's just agility, you know, like being willing to test things, try things and not, you know, stay the course if it doesn't work. Everything's going to continue to evolve. And as long as we realize that we'll evolve with it, then I think we'll be okay. That's fantastic. Great. I just have to personally say thank you. I learned so much in in this period of time together. And I think there's just so much more on this journey and the more that we can collaborate and share and learn. But to the common theme that I took away from today is, is focusing on the whole person, the health, the wellness, investing in our team, slow and steady. And I think there's there's a bright future on the horizon. So so thank you. And uh, Harriet, I know you had some closing comments as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to thank all the panelists, you know, from the seat that you sit in, your perspectives were fantastic, right? And, and very, very diverse. Mm-hmm. So appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I also appreciate all the, you know, 40 plus participants that we had that were on the call. And it'll be interesting, Mary Malone, if we do this a year from now. Yeah. What- you know, where we will be on some of these topics. So maybe you and I can revisit that. We'll have to talk. Yes. Yes. It's a journey and it's, and I don't think we're ever going to go back. I think we're going to continue to move forward, but I think it's going to be changing from month to month and year to year. So hopefully all of our panelists would love to join in with us as we continue this conversation. (laughs) So thank you for your time and thank you to our guests for attending today. Well, thank you for organizing this. It was great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Moments with M3 Leadership Podcast. 
please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. For more information on our vision, please visit m3placement.com.